You guys doing okay tonight? We're in 2 Chronicles 24. It's been a few weeks, but it's good to be back with you. Our last couple weeks haven't just been a holiday. They've been powerful. Tonight, we have no intention of slowing down, backing up, or shutting up. We want to carry the momentum that the Holy Spirit has brought us into as a body. This evening, we will grapple with the reality on the ground in the text, and we will take our stand on the power that is available to us in Christ Jesus. There's no way around it. We have some difficult things to cover. And I believe in the Almighty's power at work in our lives that will cause us to overcome the things that we read about. Before we get started, we want to read a singular scripture to you and then pray in light of that scripture. Philippians 1, 2 through 8 says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like that, grace and peace to you. Like John MacArthur kind of grace, right? (laughs) I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. As Judah said, tonight there's going to be some difficult moments. There's going to be some encouraging moments. There's going to be some inspiring moments. We're going to share on some things that are truly life-changing. But when we were praying about this message, we had you in mind. We were praying, and we were praying for every person in the room. We saw faces when we prayed. We prayed for specific things in the families and the lives in this room. And we want to say before we start, we are encouraged because we are confident that he who began a good work in all of you will carry it unto completion. Amen. We are still here. Amen. So before we start, we're going to pray. And we want the kind of prayer that we are in unity praying together. Hallelujah. Not listening to us pray. Not listening to anything else being distracted. But let's all pray together because tonight's going to be an important night. Amen. Amen. So Father, we thank you for this family of believers. Lord, I thank you for the fathers. The brothers, the sisters, the mothers that are in this room, but that we are not just a congregation of people. We are a congregation of people that have been united in you and have been made a family. Are we saved this evening? We want to do away with all formality. But we just want to reach your heart and see it fulfilled in our lives. And we ask that your spirit would carry us along as you did the prophets of old. Father, in this room, your spirit might minister to us in a way that words cannot suffice. Father, you would address our heart's condition and help us to stand for your very name because we love you. Heidi King, we praise you and commit this time to you. Amen. Alentonius Maximus. Our faithful reader of the scroll, Law on the Lips, Linton. Would you please get chapter 24 in its entirety for us? Yes, sir. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah. 
She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada chose two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Sometime later, Joash decided to restore the temple of the Lord. He called together the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go to the towns of Judah and collect the money due annually from all of Israel to repair the temple of your God. Do it now. But the Levites did not act at once. Therefore, the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why haven't you required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax imposed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and by the assembly of Israel for the tent of testimony? Now the sons of that wicked woman, Athaliah, had broken into the temple of God and had used even its sacred objects for the veils. At the king's command, a chest was made and placed outside of the gate of the temple of the Lord. A proclamation was then issued in Judah and Jerusalem that they should bring to the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, had required of Israel in the desert. All the officials and all the people brought their contributions gladly, dropping them into the chest until it was full. Whenever the chest was brought in by the Levites to the king's officials, and they saw that there was a large amount of money, the royal secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and carry it back to its place. They did this regularly and collected a great amount of money. The king and Jehoiada gave it, gave it to the men who carried out the work required for the temple of the Lord. They hired masons and carpenters to restore the Lord's temple, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the temple. The men in charge of the work were diligent, and the repairs progressed under them. They rebuilt the temple of God according to its original design and reinforced it. When they had finished it, when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money to the king and Jehoiada, and with it made articles for the Lord's temple, articles for the service and the, for the burnt offerings, and also dishes and other objects of gold and silver. As long as Jehoiada lived, burnt offerings were presented continually in the temple of the Lord. Now Jehoiada was old and full of years, and he died at the age of 130. He was buried with the kings in the city of David, because of the good he had done in Israel for God and for his temple. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and worshipped Asherah, and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came upon Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they plotted against him, and by the order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness of Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had shown him, but killed his son who said as he lied dying, May the Lord see this and call you to account. At the turn of the year, the army of Aram marched against Joash. It invaded Judah and Jerusalem and killed all the leaders of the people. They sent all the plunder to, the, to their king in Damascus. Although the Aramean army had come with only a few men, the Lord delivered into their hands a much larger army. Because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, judgment was ex executed on Joash. Mm -hmm. 
When the Arameans withdrew, they left Joash severely wounded. His officials conspired against him for murdering the son of Jehoiada the priest, and they killed him in his bed. So he died and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Those who conspired against him were Zabad, son of Shimeah, an Ammonite woman, and Jehazabad, son of Shimerith, a Moabite woman. The account of his sons, the many prophecies about him, and the record of the restoration of the temple of God are written in the annotations on the book of the kings. And Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Man, a crazy chapter, isn't it? In this chapter, you see the clash of so many different characters. You know, if this was uh, a latest Netflix special, there would be all kinds of raving reviews about the character arcs and things that happen in this chapter. You know, I don't recommend that they do that because they often get it wrong when they do biblical shows. And you see a lot of interesting things here. When you think about the kingdom, you think about Christendom or Christianity, you tend to see a lot of rising figures and icons within the Christian world. You tend to see a lot of movers and shakers, so they used to call them. A lot of people look at what other men do. Very few actually sit down and look why they do what they do. What's the motivation behind it? You know... If you learn to have eyes like the Lord, you tend to see people that are not movers and shakers in the sight of all Christianity that really are movers and shakers in the sight of God because they're motivated by the right things. Tonight we're going to get an inward perspective of that because you see it some rising stars who are a little bit less known. And then you see some others that are more known and more prominent positions and it didn't go so well for them, did it? Well, Linton, would you pick up in uh, verse 1? And just read verse 1 for us. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibia. She was from Beersheba. Now, I want to recap a little bit for you. Uh, there's been a couple weeks in between our last session. We had a great One Association conference, a couple of inspiring, amazing words from our pastors. You might have forgotten a little bit about Joash and his life. Things you need to think about. Jehoiada is the one who placed Joash there. Joash is not reigning due to any other fact than a man fought for him to be in that position. Another man risked his life. His wife risked her life to to see this young boy place as king. In chapter 22, Ahaziah died and his wicked mother, Athaliah, took over the throne And she slaughtered all but one of the remaining heirs of the throne. Man, he's a recipient of mercy, right? A recipient of grace. The promise of God through the Davidic line was preserved through one brave woman who was married to a priest. They stood, she stood in chapter 22, and she risked it all on the line for a promise. And this young boy didn't do anything. He, He won the lottery, so to speak. He got kept alive. Someone else had to do all of the hard work for him. In chapter 23, the priest Jehoiada showed his strength. Y'all remember that? He deposed the wicked witch, Athaliah, (laughs) gentlemen you may smoke, and installed Joash as the rightful king. Remember how Jehoiada calls all of the Levites together? He rallies everyone. They take their stand around Joash, and then they seat him 
on the throne? This guy was a recipient of other people's hard work. These faith-filled events in the face of danger inspired us and reminded us of the sovereignty of God during uncertain times. Now we are diving into the life of Joash after being given such a powerful start. His kingship started with a bang. But there's something that's going to cost him here. He didn't have to work very hard to become king. He didn't have to persevere. He really he he was seven years old when he was placed on the throne. That's pretty young, isn't it? We ought to be warned against becoming a king too soon, resting on the merits of others and being carried by the courage of better men. You guys know the song, Help Me Find My Own Flame? Well, Joash didn't quite do that. He was riding on the coattails of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada the priest was the one who did all of the hard work to get him there. Wow. And we're going to see what that happened, what that causes in his life. Let's pick up in verse 2. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the years of Jehoiada, Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada chose two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. All right, so there are a few things we're going to get to in these couple verses. But I want to point out to you that the chronicler... Ezra immediately drops hints as to where the story is going to end in verse 2. In the eyes of the Lord, all the years of Jehoiada the priest. Joash has been saved into a kingly position, credited with right standing, and endowed with supernatural power. He was saved from destruction, much like you and I. Jehoiada was there to show him what kind of man he was to become. His salvation was the starting point of the rest of his life and kingship and what had been handed to him. Think over this past conference, one pastor said that salvation is a fantastic, it's a tremendous starting point, and it is a terrible ending point. We're going to see how this plays out and how we can arm ourselves as we continue. It's an extraordinary fact that we've noticed over the years that often people who have been handed the most produce the least in the kingdom. Those that you fought the hardest for to succeed, that you had to help limp along constantly, are the quickest to turn away. Joash had gained the outward adornment of a king, but it remains to be seen so far in the chapter whether or not he will gain kingly character, conviction, and courage. Now... Remember, his line was almost extinguished in chapter 22. His line was almost completely wiped off of the planet. That might be why uh, Jehoiada chose two wives for him. He might be looking at Joash and say, Hey, you need to start bearing some children so that we don't have to rest on Joash alone and we can rest on God's favor. Sons in great quantity were needed. You know? And I kind of imagine the point, the reason why Joash did what was right in the eyes all the years of joy to the priest was the fact that he gave him two wives. I think that's kind of funny. You know, he did what was right all the years of Jehoiada because he gave him something he wasn't supposed to have. But anyway, let's pick up in verse four and read on down to verse five became king when he's seven. We've been debating all day in the next verse when Jehoiada brought him the two wives. One of the elders help us out they? on that one. Help us, Linton. Sometime later, Joash decided to restore the temple of the Lord. Oh, amen. He called together the priests and Levites and said to them, 
Go to the towns of Judah and collect the money due annually from all Israel to repair the temple of your God. Do it now. But the Levites did not act at once. This is an interesting note about his leadership style. Notice here that the Levites were told to do it now. Everybody say, do it now. Do it now. Man, that's a good thing to do, isn't it? When you get a command from the Lord, you don't wait. You don't stop. You do it now. You run to go do what God is saying. (coughs) Slow obedience is no obedience. But you want to know something? There's something a little bit deeper that we want to dig into. We want to focus on Joash's leadership here. You know, it was already mentioned that he only did well when Jehoiada was alive. He only did well while Jehoiada was with him. So what would that say about his leadership? He only did well if he had this man of God who was right up next to him. And you're going to see that develop here. But what would that say about his leadership? He is demanding people to do something. He's demanding people to do something while he can't do anything unless his fearless leader is with him. You starting to see that? Joash was a man who was put into a position that he didn't personally fight for or pay the cost to obtain. I know none of us have ever resented a boss's son who had no idea what he was doing on the job site. But perhaps these Levites understood that this man is in a position he didn't pay for, that he didn't fight for. Joash was a man that only did well under the supervision of others. His right actions were not internally motivated, but externally motivated. This produced a half-hearted reaction in the men who were under him. They needed continuous supervision because he did. Have you ever looked at a father and seen his sons and wondered why they have the problems that they do? Or looked at a boss somewhere and wondered why the employees have the problems that they do? He could not be counted on to work when a supervising eye was not upon him. Neither could his men. It is impossible to inspire others with what you don't personally possess. That's a truth that cannot be weaseled out of, worked around, or talked out of at any point in time. It is impossible to inspire in others what you don't personally possess. Righteous men will always, somebody say always, always, follow other men with conviction courage, hope, and inwardly driven passion for the living God. A love that cares not for the cost will inspire the same in other people. i got to hand it. When we were studying this, there's a little bit of temptation to be hard on the Levites. But you know, the crazy thing is they're doing the exact same thing that Joash does. He cannot function without leadership in his life. As soon as the oversight leaves his life, everything goes to total garbage everything and then he's getting mad at the levites because they can't function without supervision and it's not until jehoiada comes on the scene and he looks right at jehoiada and says hey why are they not doing this and then when jehoiada gets involved they actually start moving well why could it be that jehoiada was possessed by something great and that he operated under the command of the Lord, and he really didn't need anybody telling him what to do, and therefore they were inspired by a man like that? Could it be that? I think so. We want to look at Levites and say it's their fault, when in fact, they're just following their leader. He doesn't do what he's told either, unless Jehoiada's right there. You know what that says about us? We have to ask the question, 
What's motivating us? Are we more comfortable with delegation, like Joash is, than devotion? Are we more comfortable delegating? When someone comes up and says, hey, man, I got a problem, I don't know. I don't know. Go talk to say He's better at that than I am. Instead of being devoted to the Lord and hearing from the Lord. We've seen this many times. There are people that just cannot grow in a body, no matter which body they're in, unless the pastors or elders step in and make them grow on their own. There are people that just would not grow one bit unless they constantly have pastors there telling them what they need to do. That is a problem. That is a big problem. That's a Joash problem. You know, this shows up when we raise our children. We raise grown children who are still relating to the Lord only in Moses' terms, like a slave-like relationship. And it's because we failed to grow. We failed to grow inside, right here. We failed to grow in the things the Lord's showing us, and our kids don't know how to grow. They're still relating to it in slave-like terms. What about bringing less impact to your surrounding than the surroundings impacting you? That is all a byproduct of not having a right internal motivator. Tonight we want to we we really want to talk to you about pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Amen. When you get that right, you don't need somebody constantly over you telling you, "Hey, you you've got to stop sinning. You've got to stop looking at that." We have guidance from our leaders for a purpose because they're to help direct us in the things we have heard from the Lord, not hear from the Lord for us. Man, what about being more comfortable talking about what he's done for you in the past than what you are currently doing for him? That is also a sign that you are more external motivated than you are motivated by God's love and his pure devotion in your heart. All of these things are sign that you may be a spoiled child of the king, like Joash is. May be a spoiled child of the king instead of a son who loves his father. What we're getting at tonight is that Joash had a problem. He was a spoiled child of the king. Everything in his life, his reign, his ascending to the throne was given to him by a righteous priest. And one thing he did not learn along the way is what Jehoiada had to learn. Remember what we covered in the last few weeks? Why did Jehoiada do what he did? Because he had a promise that turned into convictions, which resulted in courage, that brought out actions that resulted in victory. Joash never learned that because everything was given to him and he was just coddled. He didn't have to learn those hard lessons himself that caused him to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, speak to me. I don't want to be a a follower of my father's God. I want you to be my God. Men that we admire the most, like Jehoiada, are driven by a great love for the Lord to accomplish His will. Saints, what we desire for you tonight, from the youngest sitting over here to the oldest in the room, is that regardless of how long you've known the Lord, that a great love might drive you along to accomplish His work. Amen. That it would be kindled inside of your soul and be something that is like fire shut up in your bones. Men driven in this manner care little if it is well received or if they helped in accomplishing the task. Why? Because love is driving them towards their king. It is driving them to something they must and know they can accomplish in his power. See, when we're looking around at our circumstances to the left and right constantly, complaining that someone's not helping us in it, 
It's because we're being driven by an obligation. We're being driven by fear. Being driven by a great love for the living God will cause you to face insurmountable odds, face danger, and see victory because he is the one sustaining it. We often compare these things to natural relations because the body, or the word of God does. It should not require obligation for you to do what is right on your wife's behalf because you're motivated by a great love. If that is true of a man and woman, what it should look like between the body of Christ and the living God who created the heavens and the earth. These kind of men are driven. They're compelled. They're urged to see righteousness done, and it is not based upon fear of failure or consequence. They're driven along because they love the king whom they serve. As we pick up in verse 6, we want to take stock of our actual relationship with the Lord. Whether it's a few years old or 20 years old, we want to evaluate our heart before the living God and be a man like Jehoiada. Come on. Brother, help us out with verse 6. Therefore, the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why haven't you required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem tax imposed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and by the assembly of Israel for the tent of the testimony? So let's ignore the fact that Jehoiada is the chief priest for a second because we don't want to get into that. He is going to Jehoiada and he's putting all of the blame on Jehoiada. They don't respond. The Levites almost just don't listen when Joash is talking, although he is the king. And then he goes to Jehoiada and says, hey, why haven't you gotten involved? It's your fault that they're not doing this. When in fact, is Joash really a man worthy to be followed? Well, we'll get into that. I want to talk to you a little bit about the tax that he's, he's talking about here. He mentions that there is a tax imposed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and by the assembly of Israel. Well, we're going to look into that. It was a little bit hard for us to find because when we we're studying it, we're like, which one is that? I, I don't remember. I remember they gathered things to build the tabernacle, but I didn't remember a tax. So let's uh, hand out a few passages. And Paul Rosales, you get Exodus 30, 11 through 16. Uh, Emmy, you're going to get 2 Kings 12, 2 through 4, and that's it. Paul, when you get there, go ahead and read Exodus. Exodus 30, 11 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less than when... when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. May I say that's a right direction? That's a right direction. It is a right direction any time a king goes back to the law. The temple of the Lord must be repaired. Say must be. And it is the responsibility of the king to ensure that the funds are available. 
It's interesting to note that no man was exempt. Say no man. No man. Whether rich or poor, young or old, you were personal, personally responsible for paying the full price. Doesn't matter if you were rich, poor, there was a price set and every person had to pay the same price. Man, there's a message in that, isn't there? Yeah. Oddly enough, though, it is not Joash who leads the people into the right direction. I mean, he tries. He sees a right thing that needs to be done, and he tries. But when they don't respond, this spoiled child turns against Jehoiada instead of reckoning with his own lack of personal character. Instead of reckoning with his own inability to lead, he turns to Jehoiada, and he says, basically, it's his fault. But you know, real men will never follow a man. Real men. Say real men. Real men. Will never. Say never. Never. Follow a man who lacks genuine conviction and urgency derived from God's kindness. Real men will never, ever follow a man who lacks genuine convictions and urgency. All of the men that we, we are inspired by in this in this room are men that have genuine convictions do you know what happens is we get convicted we look behind us and we say man not enough people are following me and we start to blame the person that actually does have genuine convictions and say that it's all their fault how do you get those genuine convictions well you've got to look at what's motivating you on the inside and you have to stand up and you have to say I am not following genuine convictions. You have to actually be a man and realize I need some genuine convictions. And then that will produce urgency derived by God's kindness, not God's brutality on your life, not the fear of punishment, but actually derived by God's kindness. Man, that's a comforting thing, isn't it? Yes. Answer this. Are laws internal or external out in society? By definition, they're external because whether or not you personally feel that way, it is a law and it's enforced for a reason. A conviction is the very opposite. By definition, it must be internal. It is not something that has been imposed upon you. It's something that for conscience sake between you and the living God is a law for you. So a conviction is not something someone else can give you. It's not something that you can feel good or bad about when you hear it. A conviction is something that must be internally derived by your interaction with God's kindness. We want to look at how Jehoiada is interacting with these things. Once again, in the midst of this, Jehoiada becomes the instrument of God. He gets things moving. The Levites, they listen to him after he gets involved and they start collecting the tax. But honestly, when you genuinely are fighting for people to succeed, and you're not interested in self-aggrandizement. This is a painful thing. It's painful for Jehoiada after he risked his life, risked his wife's life, to raise up this son that did not belong to him. And Joash cannot do anything without him getting involved. Despite the fact that he's the king, sated in a position that carries authority. If Joash cannot do anything by himself, then is he actually the king? It's not Joash who is doing anything in this story. This is just like us running, constantly looking, and needing someone else to keep us walking 
in the light of Christ. If your salvation, I'll turn this thing off for a minute, they will wait. <laughs> if our salvation looks like Joash and that we've been clothed in royal robes, seated with Christ, credited with righteousness, but we're unable to hold to the directions we feel like God gave us without the support of priests around us, then it's not genuinely yours, even if you think it's a pretty good idea. I think it's a great idea to collect this temple tax. But if I'm not able to stand and be driven along to see it accomplished with or without help, then no matter the words that are spoken, it's not actually in you. They didn't respond to the king's word. And now it's all Jehoiada's fault, even though he's the reason that Joash is alive. He's the reason that Joash is king. He's the reason that Joash takes a very breath in the moment that he confronts him. Man, I wish that was a story that I was unfamiliar with in our church body. But unfortunately, I don't have to draw too many direct parallels to see that. But what I would like to do is suggest that we evaluate our own lives so that we're not the parable that is being spoken about. Hallelujah. We're about to get into the parallel account of Chronicles and Kings. But we have to stop at some point and ask ourselves, how much of this is really me? How much of what is going on is actually me? If you are constantly having to be corrected and corrected and corrected and not correcting yourself, then are you the one who's really correcting anything? Are you the one who's actually getting anything right? In your life, if the pastors have to step in every day, every week and say, you have to be doing this, you need to be doing that, you have to get this area of your life right, then how much of it is you actually trying to get right? See, the kingdom is not made up of men like Jehoiada and coming in and stepping in all the time for men like Joash. That is a problem. That's a Joash problem. And when Joash gets in that kind of situation, it starts internally and it ends up externally and it's a big mess. And we try to start externally by cleaning it all up, but you've got to start internally to fix it. You have to look inside of you and say, why am I constantly having to have these guardrails all the time? Now I'm going to tell you, guardrails are good. I have them in my life for a very big reason. But there's a problem if I can't function in the kingdom without constant oversight. At some point, we have to grow up like men and say, no, I can do it. I can because the power of God is inside me. And I have deep convictions. 2 Kings 12, verse 2 through 4. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Joash, Joash said to the priests, Collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord, the money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Now here we see that census that's a little bit different. This is the census they're taking, and this is why they're taking the tax. But there's something that's not here. It doesn't exist. Do you notice lack of personal sacrifice on someone's part? Joash is telling them to take this tax and use it for the service of the temple. He's telling them. But where's his contribution? 
Don't you remember it says whether rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Everyone has to pay. There is no part of Joash, although he is a king, joining in with the peasants around him and making the same sacrifice. He was comfortable delegating, but paid nothing himself as his fathers before him had done. Man, how much had David contributed? How much has Solomon contributed? And this spoiled child is comfortable letting other people make the sacrifice for him. Man, when you get comfortable, see, there's something that happens in our walk where we get kind of comfortable with with having a body like we have. We don't want to stand up and actually do the work ourselves. I am comfortable that I have a wave and a mat here to constantly correct me, so I just do whatever I want without worry of the consequence. Or I don't even try because I know that they will get the job done. There is something that happens inside of a Christian when they are lacking that personal conviction, when they are lacking that growth that is from God. You remember the passage that says, I, Paul, planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow? When you are lacking that part where God is making it grow, then all you have is Paul planting a seed and Apollos watering, but nothing's growing. And that shows up in delegation and just letting everyone else sacrifice instead of you paying your part. When you rise up in convictions, you are eager, willing to pay the sacrifice because you are included in the people of God. We're going to give you a few examples. We're going to bounce back and forth of these. But we were thinking of specific areas that shows up in our lives. When we act like this, man, our children suffer for it. You ever notice that sometimes parents have kids that just will not obey what they say? Perhaps it's because the parents haven't learned to obey what God is telling them, even when it hurts. Man, all the times, mothers, you're like, man, my kids don't listen to me. But when my husband comes, they listen to him. Maybe it's because you haven't actually learned to listen to your husband. Maybe they're learning something from the mothers that the mothers are doing themselves. Oh, come on, husbands. Does it take a pastoral sit-down for there to actually be a change in your home with your wife? That you can correct it, or maybe sheepishly broach the subject, like just trying to narrowly make contact and not have to discuss it any more than a slight suggestion. But your pastor can get it in order. Why is it that it's required that your Jehoiada comes to get your home in order when it's your responsibility? Perhaps it's because we've been delegating our sacrifice and our responsibility far too long and we're now eating the fruit of it. An inward motivation towards righteousness will cause it to produce good fruit in every area of your life. How's your relationship with your fathers? Is it that of one that is like our Moses stage in our children's teaching? Where rather than growing in a personal relationship where you love them and they love you and you're moved by that love to right action, to sacrifice, to being a good son, you're mostly scared that you'll get in trouble. Oh, and when we said correction earlier, it was true, but we probably could have said getting caught because... The issue is really not the correction, it's the lack of inward relationship. See, what we want to foster between 
our marriages and our father-son relationships, like the men that are sitting on this row, like Elder Charlie and Elder Bosch, are inward-motivated relationships, not fear of consequence, but a heart that is ascending to the righteousness we are called to. What we're trying to achieve tonight is realize what actually brings about generations of men and women who are able to grab the trumpet and the torch and go to war. You remember Sunday's message? Do as I do, not let me do it for you. You will never accomplish anything in your walk here at LCM if you let other men do it for you. And that, that applies to every area of your life. Correcting you, training you, teaching you the word. I've heard so many times, man, I would love to know the word better. I just need to go sit with Pastor Matt and I'm going to learn the word. That is not how you learn the word. You do it yourself. Get into the book, read it, study it. This is how we make those generations. What's going to happen when all of the leaders that are given to us by God and for a very good reason, what's going to happen to us when they're gone? When that generation passes, our leaders will not be around forever. The reality is our elders speaking with a kind of wisdom that just comes from experience with the Lord. Charlie, Elder Charlie and Miss Joe have watched men rise and men fall. Some that were rough around the edges and had humble beginnings become something useful in the hands of the king. What we're imploring you to look at this evening is that I am desperately grateful for every day that I have with my elder that honestly has been a grandfather to me since I was a boy while my natural parent, grandparents fell away and tried to destroy this ministry. That man is precious to me. Amen. But I'm not going to have him forever. You can be the grandson of an elder in this room. You can be the son or daughter of a pastor in this room or an adopted disciple. But they will not be there forever to sustain you. The question is, when Jehoiada is gone, will you be ready? We do not learn how to become like Jehoiada by just merely mimicking what we see these men do. We learn to become like Jehoiada when we learn how they became what they are. When we learn to be motivated inwardly like they are motivated inwardly. When we look at our hearts like they look at their hearts. When we learn how to repent like they repent. When we learn how to be full of zeal over the things God is full of zeal about, like they are. We learn how to become like Jehoiada by looking closely into the inward motivators of these men. These men are not motivated one bit by your praise, by building a big church, by by outwardly looking like things are all together. In fact, I think you've seen rather the, the opposite. I think you've seen in this church men are open and willing To lay out there, this is where I've got it wrong. How you learn how to become like these men is you learn how to get convictions like them. You learn how to cry out to God like them. And yes, you do learn that by trying to do what they do, but it takes root in your heart. And then in your heart you start feeling the same things. I want to ask this question again. Our leaders will not be around forever. 
Fathers are not always home to see their kids and how they act. Mothers will eventually see their kids leave their home. We have to move from being motivated by something external, like fear, pressure, trying to get it right in the eyes of the people. We have to move on from that to something internal. Discipleship is not a process of changing everything around you into a perfect situation so you can sit Joash on the throne. It is the cultivation of your heart to being inspired. Say inspired. Inspired. It's the cultivation of your heart to being inspired by the same things as the Jehoiada in your life. Amen. Can you answer that question right now? What is what inspires the Jehoiada in your life? Can you look at your disciples and say that he is inspired by X, Y, and Z about the character of God? He is inspired by this and that revelation? And then can you say that about yourself? That you are inspired by these things. Not fearful. Not motivated by external pressure, but inspired. All right, everybody. Raise your hands for just a minute. Mighty King. Lord, we thank you that you've given us good direction. That you've given us men that we can come and follow. And become light and be filled with those torches. We're asking that your spirit's fire might kindle a zeal for your house inside of us this evening. But we commit our way to you. Amen. Start reading in verse 7 for me. Now the son of that wicked woman, Athaliah, had broken into the temple of God and had used even its sacred objects for the build. Keep going. At the king's command, a chest was made and placed outside at the gate of the temple of the Lord. A, pro- a proclamation was then issued in Judah and Jerusalem that they should bring to the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, had required Israel to bring Israel, required of Israel in the desert. All of the officials and all the people brought their contributions gladly, dropping them into the chest until it was full. Wherever the chest, whenever the chest was brought in by the Levites to the king's officials. And they saw that there was a large amount of money. The royal secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and carry it back to its place. They did this regularly and collected a great amount of money. The king and Jehoiada gave it to the men who carried out the work required for the temple of the Lord. They hired masons and carpenters to restore the the Lord's temple and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the temple. The men in charge of the work were very diligent, and the repairs progressed under them. They rebuilt the temple of God according to its original design and reinforcement. Oh, come on now. Did you catch that last part? Yes. yes. Its original design, oh, yes. and they reinforced it. Amen. Saints, this is what happens when a real priest, one who is compelled, urged, moved by an internal love for the living God, sets to work on the task that has been assigned. Man, I don't know how bad the temple had gotten, but the very first verse said that Athaliah's sons had desecrated even the articles inside the temple. But the repairs progressed because the men were working diligently. I imagine they worked diligently because they were following a man that had a holy zeal for the work that he was doing. They were following Jehoiada in this. Man, I love the fact that they restored it to the original design. They learned how to follow the pattern that had been given, come and follow me, and they reinforced the design. Thanks. We are not fighting to hold on to what the previous generation had. 
We are fighting to be a mirror image that has been reinforced in every area. Men like Joshua had all the strength of Moses, but none of the weaknesses. We're going to raise up warriors like Joshua in this house. Men like Elisha had the discernment of Elijah and twice the miracles. We will raise up men like that in this house. The 12 disciples learned their way of life from Christ himself. And they were promised even greater things. Saints, we must adopt the original design and learn to reinforce it. But it's not settled for less. God has given us an example of what it looks like to internally be motivated. Where if you were dropped in a desert somewhere, you were dropped in India, you were dropped in Africa, you would build the exact same thing that you found here. Listen, we all have to reckon with the areas that when you are not surrounded by believers like this, you don't look like us. The reality is everyone in this room has some areas like that. And if you pretend that you don't, then you're already lying, and I'm not sure how the rest of the evening's going to go for you. <laughs> but when you realize, yes, I benefit greatly from my brothers and my pastors in this area, but it is not acceptable for me just to rely upon them. I need to have the same kind of love for the living God. Yeah. He will answer a man's prayer like that. This is why we started with Philippians 1.6, and we're going to read it again. Being confident of this. Say confident. Confident. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Quite honestly, this is nothing that you can do. This is not something like Judah said when he was closing out yesterday's message. The truth is the task is too hard. And yes, you can't do it. And none of us have the strength. But we are confident that he who started the good work is going to carry it on to completion. You know how I know that? Because it's happening in my life. What was started long time ago is still growing and growing. And I'm still finding areas in my life as I get with these men. And as I get with my brothers and sisters in the Lord, I'm finding areas of my heart that I need to be inwardly motivated better about the Lord. Amen. That is Him carrying me on to completion. We are confident tonight that the grace of God will finish its work in our lives. We're confident of that. It will never fail as long as you are committed to the process. It will never fail. We are seeing this all over the place. When we were praying, like I said, we saw, as we were praying, we were praying for families, different people in the room. We prayed for families like the Phillips family. And we see and are confident that it is growing inside of the Phillips family. We saw in men like Marlon Sosa and his family that, that this inward burning conviction is growing and he doesn't care a damn what anyone else thinks. Amen. That he is growing just like he sees in the pastors and elders. We're seeing this in Assad, the Lion King Robinson and his family. We are literally watching a lion-like faith growing inside of him. And you know what? We'd all like to say, yeah, we helped him do it, but it is honestly the Lord God who is burning in him like a fire, and it is a result of obedience to what he's saying. Man, we're seeing Adam Cora. We're seeing Adam Cora leave everything behind. And what I love about Adam is he looks right at all of us and he says, man, I want to be right there where you are. I want to be right there where you are. And you know, it kind of looks like I just want to be on the team, but you know what it is? It is the motivation of God that says, I want to go into war with my brothers for the living king, and I will leave no one behind. We are confident that the grace of God will finish its work 
in men like Brenton Vincent and the family that God is going to add to him. We are confident that God's grace will finish its work in men like Andrew Tisdale and the family that God will add to him. The same for Robert Burnett and the family that God is going to add to him. David Bonham, where are you at? You ain't here tonight? We are confident that the grace of God in Bonnie's life will bring it to completion and the family that God is going to add to him. Men like Paul Makowitz and his family came all the way from the exact opposite end of the United States. (laughs) And we are confident that God will finish its work in Paul. Men like Rick Lawhon and his family. Men like Paul Rosales and his family. God's grace will complete that work. And Tom Powell and his wife, that God's grace will finish this work. That work has come follow and experience the same love and zeal that we have for the Lord. His grace will bring you into the same kind of urgency, compelled, driven life that you see before you. None of us are going to stay just following written rules. God is giving us something better and all surpassing power in jars of clay. The truth is that we could teach all kinds of things. The pastors can teach all kinds of things to you. They can show you how to pray. They can show you all kinds of things. But only God can put a fire inside of you. Only God can build a fire inside of you, and we're watching it right now. Psalm 37, verse 23 is a favorite in this house. Depending what translation you're reading, it says the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in them. I want to tell you that that man is not just a man. It's a Gabor. The idea is that those whom God has made spiritually strong, because you can't do it yourself, will be established by him. You will delight in the steps that he gives you. Look at me. Rid yourself of fear of the future. Rid yourself of fear of inadequacy. I'm looking at you single men. I'm looking at you men that have more responsibility over the last year than should be placed on any human being except the fact that Christ is in you. (laughs) Rid yourself of this fear and replace it with an all-consuming love, and I promise you will delight in the steps down the road. You may have days that are hard as could be, (laughs) but you will look back like these men and be delighting in the steps that he brought you through and the sons that are behind you. It's worth it. Brother Linton, pick up in verse 14 and help us keep moving. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money to to the king and Jehoiada. And with it were made the articles for the Lord's temple, articles for the service and for the burnt offerings, and also dishes and other objects of gold and silver. As long as Jehoiada lived, burnt offerings were presented continually in the temple of the Lord. Again. While Jehoiada was alive, this is what they did. Perhaps because Jehoiada did this with a pure and sincere heart, and he was intentionally, he was internally motivated toward his God. Perhaps because Jehoiada did this with a pure and sincere heart, other men saw it and said, I want to do the same thing. Amen. Could it be that men and women who set themselves on fire for Jesus 
people will come and watch you burn. And perhaps they'll get close to the fire and they'll say, man, I want a little bit of that inside of me. It is entirely possible. It is infectious whenever you light yourself on fire for the love of Jesus. You will motivate people around you because they will see someone who is on fire, internally motivated by the love of Christ, and they'll want a little bit of it. How is it when you're reading Fox's Book of Martyrs? You're reading about people who are being lit on fire and they're singing while they do it. And there are other people standing around and saying, I want to be next. It's because there's something powerful going on there. It's not powerful when a pastor has to come tell you you need to sacrifice more. It's not powerful when you're thinking about taking a vacation and you know somebody has to say, hey, I mean, do you really need to do that? At least go visit one of the other churches or something. It's not powerful when you get corrected and you go, yeah, I realized I was wrong. It is powerful when you repent in that situation. But you want to know what's even more powerful? When you seek the face of your God and you're driven by love to want to know what He has to say already. Amen. When the love of God keeps you from places you're not supposed to be in, that is powerful. And when men ask, they're like, why do you do that? You're like, because I have a great king that I love so much that I'm willing to do anything for. That is why they offered burnt sacrifices in the life of Jehoiada. And that's why they stopped when Jehoiada died. Because they had Joash, who was not worth anything. (laughs) Men are drawn to these kind of men. And they're drawn to their God. If you have that internal motivation, people will be asking you, what's what's motivating you? What reason do you have for the hope that you have? And your answer is, I've got a great God that I'm willing to do all this for, and even more you haven't seen. Brother Linton, you're going to get interrupted a lot, so just be ready. All right, we're pushing pause. <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean to be old and full of years? I guess it depends upon who you ask. Those of you in the room that are nearing 30 or nearing 40 and are scared to death that uh, you're not going to be able to accomplish your task, I suggest that you take a look at Moses. That you take a look at Caleb. That you take a look at Jehoiada. That God doesn't actually need your strength or your youthful vigor. What he needs is your wholehearted devotion and your obedience. Keep reading. All right, I think it's safe to say that 130 is old no matter you know what diet plan you're on or how much kale you're eating. 130 is old. Oh, come on now. Now, Justin and I racked our brains for a little while today. I can't find another example of a priest being buried with the kings. Perhaps it's because his life was one that was priestly and kingly. A little bit like a certain son of David that is still to come in our chronological story. One that was a priest and a king and fought for the salvation of other men that were called to be kings. Keep reading, Linton. In the city of David, because of the good he had done in Israel for God and his temple. I want you to notice that Ezra attributes what was done to the temple to Jehoiada. He does not attribute it to Joash. Jehoiada was honored not for his wealth, not for his prestige or popularity. He was honored because he revered, loved, and devoted his life to the Lord even if no one stood with him. He had seasons in his life where it was just him and his wife. 
and he had other seasons when his son, so to speak, was the king and he should be honored. But something of his love and devotion was oak-like and not, did not sway despite the times. A man like that is what we should honor. It is what we should be aiming for. And it is what will count you in the number of the kings in eternity. Not the position that you had. Not the prestige that you received from men, saved or otherwise. Not the honor that you took for yourself. But the inward motivation, love, and devotion towards the living God. 130 years is an extraordinary lifespan, isn't it? I think there's a few Chinese and Japanese that have gotten that high, but and I think they did it by smoking cigars and uh, drinking Dr. Pepper. So that's an extraordinary lifespan, isn't it? You know that this was the mercy of God on that nation? It wasn't for joy. To... They did well while he was alive, and apparently for 130 years they did pretty darn well. But as soon as he died, they didn't. 130 years sounds like a long time, doesn't it? But it really is a finite amount of time. There's also a finite amount of time that we all have to become like our fathers on the inside, as well as the outside. It's good. Look, 130 years sounds like a long time. You could look at Joash and you say, man, you had 130 years. This guy and his wife practically raised you and brought you to the throne. You had 130 years. But in the light of eternity, James says life is like a vapor. It is here one moment and gone the next. There is a, fi- a finite amount of time that you have to learn from these men in this room what you need to learn. There's a finite amount of time to learn how to love the Lord like they love the Lord. Yeah. External motivation is best left for those still in diapers. And it will never carry you until the end like it carried Jehoiada. And you could see that in Joash's life. He had a problem. As soon as Jehoiada died, Joash had a nasty external problem. We're going to do that one one more time. (laughs) External motivation is best left for those still in diapers. It will never carry you to the end of your race wholeheartedly on fire for Jesus. Take stock of any area that your relationship with Christ is diaper-like. Because we're supposed to be well beyond that at this point. At best, external motivation is like putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound. you got to get right because the pastor's telling you to get right. It's supporting a house of cards. It's propping up a tower doomed to fall. If you're living by external motivation, you are doomed to fall. You're walking around and people are saying, hey, how come you don't do this? Well, you know, the pastors won't let me then you're doomed to fall. But if you can learn how to say, well, this is not good for me in my relationship with the Lord, that is everything to me and I won't do it, you might actually become like Jehoiada. We must stand up as men of God and wholly adopt the original design. Reinforce it and grow in our love for the God whom we claim to serve. That is everything. Tonight, your love for the Lord is what what we are putting on examination. Tonight we are asking, what does your love with the Lord look like? What does it look like after you leave this meeting and and you're on your way, your drive home? What does it look like when you're at work? What does it look like when you are laying in bed at night, when you're waking up in the morning? 
How is your love of the Lord? Now let's pick up and read in verse 17. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king. And he listened to them. So they come and pay homage. Why is it they need to pay homage? Well, the priest just died. We've had some kind of power change. And they come and they pay homage, honor, respect. They show that he is still popular in their eyes. The exact opposite of what I just told you, Jehoiada did not have, but that he was honored for his sincere love. And it says that he listened to them. There's a narrative that is building that we'll piece together for you in here in just a few verses. But once again, he's failing to lead the people. But all of a sudden, things are radically different in verse 17. There is no Jehoiada to do it for him. Saints, there's a narrative that's been coursing through some of your lives where you have failed to lead, failed to stand time and time again, but Jehoiada was there, so you didn't really feel the effects of it. Somebody else rescued your family. Somebody else helped you stand firm and kept you on the right road. But there's a verse 17 coming in your life when Jehoiada will no longer be there. Let's examine the narrative. Verse 18, Linton. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and worshipped Asherpoles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came upon Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. Listen, Justin's going to pick up here in just a moment. Isn't it a bit shocking how quickly that happened? Yes. Yeah. It wasn't a slow warming. It wasn't over three years. It's the very next verse. It's because this narrative was building for quite some time while Jehoiada was around just supporting the house of cards. Don't be the house of cards tonight. The scary thing is after the oversight of Jehoiada died. See, Jehoiada died, but it wasn't just Jehoiada that died. It was his oversight that died with him. After the oversight died... The king and the people resort to what they have always desired on the inside. Woo! They weren't internally motivated by love for the Lord, love for the Davidic promise, love for the Davidic king like David and Jehoiada had. They were motivated by sinful desires and they had those sinful desires on the inside and they became external as soon as the oversight left. Even though prophets were sent to them. They now have gone from not being able to do anything without the oversight of the priest to now not listening to any priest, any prophet, anything that is coming their way. You know the passage where Paul is pleading, he's saying, do not, you, you were set free for the sake of freedom. Now do not use your freedom to sin. That is what happens when we have the wrong internal motivators. When we have internal motivators that are ungodly, like being seen righteous in the eyes of our friends and peers. Then when we get out of the oversight of our friends and peers, the inward desires of our heart come back to us when we're gone. It shows up like having a great Sunday. You're doing fine. You're doing, you're happy. You're coming and rejoicing in church, in service. And then as soon as it's over, you go and have the most demonic, ungodly fight with your spouse. Because that was your internal motivator. Your external motivator, your, your internal motivator became your external motivator in that moment. That is why we're checking our hearts now and saying, what's the internal motivation? 
Is it to please the Lord to love Him? Well, then that will become external in every situation. But if you have an internal desire for sin, no matter how long it takes, you give it, you give it a week, you give it a month, it will always show itself back up in secret, in private, when no one's watching. All right, somebody tell Justin. You're preaching to me. You're preaching to me. Because preaching he's myself. preaching to me. We're preaching to ourselves. We're a family, so we're going to talk tonight. That is a word that is useful for everyone in this room. Yeah. What is on the inside of you will always show up externally, given enough time. Look, a seed doesn't show up into fruit until enough time has passed. And then sometimes when you see the fruit, you're like, man, I've got I to gotta chop this fruit off. I've got to get it right. But you're only just seeing what the seed produced. It takes a long time to notice a seed in your heart, and we've got to get those right. Because I'll tell you, God has amazing things for this body. We are going places. We're going to affect the nations in this room. But to do that, we've got to check our internal motivation. Joash was always protected by Jehoiada. And now that Jehoiada's gone, Joash is a problem. Other men took a stand to put him on the throne, all the while his heart never really got right. It's so easy for everyone else to do the work. That's why in discipleship here, we don't just take men who come into this church and seem to be gifted and go, Amen, now teach us. Because when it becomes very easy, those internal things don't get corrected. And that is what discipleship is for your life, is to correct the internal desires. Don't turn discipleship into an external motivating corrector. Make it about what is your internal desire. We want you to notice briefly that the Lord also sent prophets to bring them back, and they did not respond to it. You're going to see an escalation of these things. I'm going to hand out a few passages before we continue that are worth us meditating on. Nolan, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Yes, PC study of the Bible has been fun as of late. Yeah, it needs to get its... JJ, Matthew 15, 17 through 19. Nick Rosales, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Marlon, Psalm 51, verse 1. Avambola, Hebrews 10, 22, just verse 22. Mr. Lawhon, if you would get 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Saints, the prophets came to them, warned them, but they couldn't hear it. Like Psalm 36, they flattered themselves too much to detect or hate their own sin. What we're recommending is that among the righteous, in our own lives, in your life, that you consider your heart a deceitful liar. Mm. I think we even had a song about it during this one association. I liked it. (laughs) Who can understand it? The reality is I don't even want to attempt to understand your deceitful heart. I want to understand the word. I want to understand the will of the living God. But if we presume that our heart is pretty good because we're born again, you're making a tragic mistake. The heart is deceitful. But the prophet here is able to acknowledge such things. And he's filled with something else that consumes his heart. That is what we are after. Why does he say the heart is deceitful? Because maybe the heart had a tendency to deceive himself. The heart is deceitful because you can be deceived by your own heart. Who's got Matthew 15, 17 through 20? Don't you see that whatever enters a 
the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these things make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. I think Jesus is unequivocally teaching that no external thing can either make you clean or unclean. It is all about what is internal, what is in your heart. It's all about looking at and saying, what is motivating me? Is evil thoughts motivating me? Is murder motivating me? Is adultery motivating me? Sexual immorality motivating me? Theft, false testimony, slander? I'll be the first to admit it's all too easy saying that you are doing what the Lord told you to do and you're doing it rightly when you can actually be motivated by these things. It happens all of the time. That's why we're examining ourselves tonight. Who's got Galatians 5, 19 through 21? Pause for just a minute for me. Now, I sincerely hope that everyone in this room can clearly identify that sexual immorality, witchcraft, whatever that means precisely, orgies and the like are obvious sin. Can I get an amen from anyone? I would like you to key in on the other things that are put in the same category according to the Word of God. Discord. Sit on that for just a moment. (laughs) Jealousy in your own heart. Same category as orgies. Dissensions and factions within the body of Christ. God considers it as detestable as everything else that has been put in this list. You want to tell me that the inward motivation of a heart is not important? Saints, we must clean both the outside and the inside of the cup. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but when I got born again, that wasn't an instantaneous process. In fact, I think the Lord has finally brought us to a place where we're growing in our awareness of sin that we've had this entire time and just couldn't see it. Much like a one-year-old who is still leaving behind diapers. At some point, we begin to realize the calling that God has for us. And we'll repeat again. No, no, you don't have what it takes. But if you find out how to reach the heart of the living God and be motivated by His love, His passion, He will help you put these things to death. Finish the passage, brother. I'm going to stop harping on this as we move on because we're about to make a turn where we're finished clinching with it and going to learn how to make our offensive. Jealousy, discord, dissensions, factions, fits of rage. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot harbor jealousy or discord in your heart and see yourself welcomed into the kingdom of God. It's plain and dry, and it's as serious as a heart attack. Your eternal state matters as whether or not you can put to death jealousy with your brothers and neighbors, whether or not you can put to death discord with the people in this room. 
If we can't unify with the people in this room, we will not unify with Christ. But if we unify with the people in this room, we become together worthy of Christ. And might live a life that is pleasing and worthy of the gospel. Who has Psalm 51.10? Create in me a pure heart. Mighty King, I don't have anything that is worth working with. My heart is deceitful and I acknowledge that. Create in me, O God, a pure heart. Saints, you have no idea how many times in a day I pray that and it is not liturgy. (laughs) O God, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Saints, I am at war with my flesh. It's stronger than I would like to admit at times, but I'm killing it because I love my Father. Not because I'm concerned about the consequences of getting something wrong. Not because I want to look a certain way. I'm inviting you right now to cultivate a desire in your own heart that says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. I want to do whatever it takes because I love you and I want to be pure in your sight. O God, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Not my neighbor, me. Lord, inside of me, give me a right spirit, then we'll deal with the rest of it. This is the beginning of cultivating a Jehoiada-like relationship with the living God. Hebrews 10, 22-23. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Hold on, pause right there. Let us what? Draw near. Let us what? Draw near. Let us draw near. How are you going to learn how to do that unless we learn from the Jehoiadas in our life? Our Jehoiadas are the ones that teach us how to draw near. The Jehoiadas are the ones that teach us how to draw near with sincere hearts and full assurance. How many of us need to know how to do that? When you are stumbling in sin, that's the last thing that you want to... That's the hardest thing to do is draw near with a sincere heart. Because the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? When you are stumbling, the last thing that you know how to do is come to Him with full assurance of faith. How many of you go to the Lord after you've really gotten it wrong with full assurance of faith? Doesn't it look more like, Oh God, please, please, will you receive me? Will you please take me back? And and there should be some of that there, quite honestly. We learn how to do this from watching the Jehoiadas in our life and getting Joash out of here. Keep going, brother. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Amen. This is the most important tenet of the Christian faith. Coming to Him time and time again. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Honestly, those with a guilty conscience. I've tried it time and time again. I've tried to rid my guilty conscience by going to everyone else in the world and saying, help free me from this guilty conscience. When the only thing that will actually fix it is being compelled by love and going to the one who shed his blood for you. We have got to learn that public success or failure alone amounts to nothing in the kingdom. Public success, public failure in and of themselves is nothing. Proper heart change will result in a heart that is compelled Amen. by the love of Christ. Yeah. He who is forgiven much loves much. Yes. He who is forgiven much is compelled to love the one that forgave him. Yeah. 
Those who are compelled by love instead of anything else will have their actions refined by the Lord and produce change in the kingdom. Amen. When you become like Jehoiada, being sprinkled clean, you will change the kingdom. This eliminates fear of punishment and pride of accomplishment. I'm going to say that again. Yeah. This eliminates fear of punishment yeah. and the pride of accomplishment. Yeah. When you humble yourself and you're like, Lord, change my heart because it's wicked. You really can't be proud of what you did, can you? Because he's the one that made it happen inside you. Amen. I believe this is why Paul can say what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. And I'm going to interrupt a little bit during that. For I'm the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Okay, so you remember that Paul in the beginning of his life says, I'm the least of the apostles. Then he goes to, I'm the least of God's people. Then he says, I'm the worst of all sinners. He knows he's wicked. He knows he's got some bad Joash tendencies. But then he says in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He was able to look at every problem in his life and said, Yes, it's all true. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was able to consider himself as a product of the Lord. And he was able to be motivated by the love of the Lord to do everything he did in his life. I bet if anybody would have gone to Paul and said, you know, Paul, you have an anger problem. You know, Paul, you've got this kind of issue. You're a little bit too tough on John Mark. And we kind of think you need to tone it down. But she was able to just look and say, hey, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But I am compelled by the love of Christ and the grace of God working in me. That is what it's like to be internally motivated. You've got nothing to hide, and you've got everything to thank God for, for what he's doing in your life. Y'all getting something out of this? Yes. We're going to pick up in verse 20. I promise it's going to get even better. Before we do, for a few of you, I can see that it's resounding with you. Others are still desperately trying to lead from some kind of place of strength. Just want to tell you in advance, we see through it pretty clearly. And if necessary, God will bring you around as many mountains, as many years, as many deserts to get you to understand that point. I might suggest if that didn't resonate with you, what Justin just said, you take some time to pray and ask God to give you insight on the matter. Because there's more than one way to learn that lesson. I'm just suggesting the one that will be most beneficial to you. (laughs) Verse 20. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah. Son of Jehoiada the priest. He stood up before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Look, we don't have the opportunity to learn very much about Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, for obvious reasons in the next couple of verses. But the man had some hoot spot. Yeah. yeah. In this little verse here, he reminds me an awful lot of his daddy. Both his father and him faced down kings, or wicked queens, if you will, (laughs) and stood for what was right, whether or not it was popular. But consider the message. He stood before the people and said, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. From his youth, he had seen the destruction that came about from compromise. 
And he also had seen the prosperity that had been ushered in during Jehoiada, his father's time, and when Joash was walking rightly. He's speaking from a kind of experience that comes from being with the Lord, regardless of what is going on around. An intimacy that allows him to hear from heaven. I assure you he's not going to get any plaudits for what he's saying right now. It must be that Christ's love is compelling him to say what is right. Just read it one more time for me. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's command? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. Saints, when you are a jar of clay, and acknowledging it, and seeking the living God, He will fill you with an all-surpassing power. It is available to you. If you continue to be wise in your own eyes and work to lead from a place of strength, you're going to see a miracle. It'll be a miracle that is in the wrong direction. Where a few men will crush you that should not have been able to overcome you naturally, but the living God is proving his point. We can sum that up by saying, the Lord is with us when we are with him. I want his all-surpassing power, and I'm okay with being a jar of clay. To pretend otherwise is me just lying through my teeth. He is able to sustain you in a supernatural way. It's time for us just to drop the dross and let him refine our life. Amen. Now we're going to backtrack a little bit to what led up up to this moment. At first, they don't listen to the king, the Levites, and Jehoiada takes the responsibility. After Jehoiada's death, The king acquiesces to the officials instead of leading them. Then prophets came to the people and the king turned a deaf ear. Didn't want to make waves. Uh Kind of like hearing a correction your wife was given and failing to follow up on it. Now the son of the priest, say the son. The son. The son of the priest is prophesying and we're going to see the king's response. This spoiled reed has relied on other men's internal motivation up to this point. And the fruit is beginning to bud. Pick up in verse 21. But they plotted against him, and by order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father Jehoiada had shown him, but killed his son, who said as he lay dying, May the Lord see this and call you to account. Saints, let's take stock of what's happening here. What is happening is that now that Jehoiada is dead, his oversight or his supervision is as well. The people in the king become unbridled in their sin because their inward motivation was never transformed. They simply followed blessings and a lack of adversity. What they wanted was God's blessing. But the moment that the restriction, that the supervision was removed, Unspeakable acts have just been committed. The man who was buried with the kings, his son, is just struck down in the temple, up close to the temple. They never became what Jehoiada was and were comfortable letting him do all the work for them. And this is what was produced. Saints, the areas that we think we're standing strong because someone else is helping us do it must be evaluated. You might find yourself doing things that are unthinkable, that are unbridled, 
Be shocked at the wickedness that is bound up in your own heart because you never searched it out and fought for an inward motivation towards the living God. What we're going to do tonight is cultivate a righteous heart towards Amen. the living God. Amen. Interestingly enough, this whole scenario is very close to what happens during Jesus' day. We're going to hand out a couple of passages and work through them together. It'll be a little bit longer, so... Brenton, we get Luke 20, get 9, all the way down to 16, but you're going to be interrupted a few times, so be ready. Then uh, Adam, Luke 11, 47 through 51. Brenton, you can get going when you're ready. Luke 20, 9 through 16. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and then went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. So at this point, Jehoiada has been, tr has been responsible for the whole season of revival in Israel. This has all been led by Jehoiada and his wife. You could think of Jehoiada as that man that planted a vineyard. He's, a, he's, the, he's the one who had the internal motivation of the love of God and actually did something with it. He's been trying to cultivate fruit in the land, but the people were motivated by something else. You remember that passage in the book of Judges at the very end, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Well, that is exactly what happens whenever the person leading them, the sage on the stage, leaves and everyone's heart hasn't been changed. And you see this in this parable with Jesus. There is a man who plants a vineyard, and they don't care anything about the man who planted it. They just care about their own vineyard. Wow. You know, after that, prophets come to Joash, but to no avail. Kind of like this parable. Pick up in, in 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out into the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Reasonable. The son of Jehoiada has come, and they are doing to him what they probably wanted to do to the father the whole time. But because of external pressure, they didn't possibly want to do that to Jehoiada. So they wait for a king who is compromised to take the reign, and then they just follow his lead. Because they never had internal motivation to work in the vineyard, never had internal motivation to please the father. They just didn't reveal that part of their nature because things were going well. It is all too easy when things are going well, like in a body like this, to not have your nature challenged. But the moment you're put in a vacuum where there's no supervision, what happens? Hey, let me put this in terms you can understand. That sweet relative that is nice to you every single time you do exactly what they want you to do. When you attend the holiday event, oh, yeah. they want you to. Yeah. Mm. Then the second that things aren't going right, you find out there was another motivation that you couldn't see. Yeah, yeah well, that exists in us too. It's just more pronounced in them. Yeah. It wasn't until Joash is reigning alone that they revert back to the ways of Samaria. Joash's failure to become like Jehoiada, that inward motivation, 
produced a nation that couldn't be moved by the love of the Lord. Mm. His failure to become like them left a whole nation in their tracks that could not be moved by the Lord. Man, how important is it as a father of a household to capture that inside your own home and not lead your home by external fear or any kind of other motivation, but pure inspiration for what the Lord has done. Man, if you don't get that right in your own home, you're going to leave people that cannot receive the love of the Lord. Children ought to be able to look at their fathers and say, man... I've messed up a lot, but I know my father has too, but he is moved by something, and I want the same thing. It's good to discipline your children, but it's also good to let them see what is inspiring you. That's why we take the time to pray with our kids. It's why we bring them in the truck with us, and when we're having hard days, they get to see what we do, because we want them to be inspired like we are. There's honestly no greater prayer or hope that we have as fathers. Look, I speak for my household. We're fond of discipline. Uh, I I don't tolerate the things that many of you do for endless amounts of time. And we are seeking the living God for something that I cannot do, that I cannot enforce. A work inside of them to be birthed that hungers for the living God in their own right. Now, there's some fathers that have been around a little longer than us that know what that looks like. And I assure you, it's something that you have to pray for. Ask the living God to yeah. reign upon. Yeah. Yeah. In a similar fashion among our brothers, men that are like sons, men that are fathers to us, we're asking that the living God would reign upon your heart this evening, that it might motivate you to do what no one else can force you to do, because we're a family. Come on. Anybody in the room who has young sons or daughters hear me? Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. God will do this in our life. We're going to examine Luke 11 now, and then we'll keep rolling with our text. But you'll see how Jesus puts this scenario. Luke 11, 47 through 51. Will you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. Do you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did? They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others... So pause for just a minute. He's addressing the fact that there's an inward desire to put to death prophets. And yet on the outside, they're building pretty tombs, which we've seen some of them in Israel. One for Zechariah. To adorn their life as if they are for them, while all the while harboring the same thing as their forefathers. Keep reading. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Zechariah is the last prophet in the Older Testament canon. Second Chronicles is the last book in the original order. Abel is the first martyr for righteousness' sake, in the Word. Jesus is saying from Genesis to the event that we're reading about right now, there has been an inward motivation that has caused men to kill the prophets all the while going through religious rituals. All the while being near the presence of God. All the while being in the light, they never tended to the internal motivation that caused them to hate the prophets of God. Cain killed his brother Because Abel's inward motivation was right. And Abel's righteous actions condemned Cain's lack of both. 
Abel wanted to please the Lord, so he did what was right. That caused condemnation inside of Cain, and instead of dealing with his own inward motivation, he killed his brother. Now, in today's society, and particularly in Texas, where lots of men carry guns, we don't often pick up a rock and throw it at someone else because they make you feel condemned. But what we do is we slander them. We mitigate their influence in our life. We shelter ourselves and our wives from them, essentially killing them in our relationship. Cain's outward-only motivation produced a hatred that was just unbridled. It's no different than the hatred you have when you're corrected. It had no supervision. It had no laws. It had no body to condemn the unrighteous action. There were but a few people, and they were in a field, so he did what his heart wanted to do. Cain's not unique in that matter. That same element that exists in Cain exists in us, and we must put it to death. We must cultivate a righteous heart like Abel toward the living God that is looking to make the offering and sacrifice. Now, Zechariah is interesting. He might as well be a brother of Joash, raised in the same house from seven. Cody is a brother of mine, and we met much later in life than that. Raised by the same man, raised in the temple of the living God together. And he was killed because his sincere, pure devotion, sincere, pure devotion to the Lord and not popularity. It caused righteous actions in Zechariah's life and shined the light of God on Joash's lack of inward and outward motivation towards the Lord. It proved the fact that he didn't actually love the Lord. Now, you want to know why that's particularly condemning? Yes. They grew up in the same house. Yeah. They were fostered in the same environment. Yeah. They had the same fathers. They had all the same opportunity, and yet one had a conviction that was based upon his love for the living God. You want to know why it bothers you so much when there's an issue? Issue is what we like to call it between you and someone else in this house. Is you've been given the exact same opportunity, and there's no way for you to scapegoat it. Yeah. But as we put that to death and we foster a love for the living God, we become more and more like Christ together on a daily basis. Look, in the context of Jesus' day, he was obviously surrounded by men that were outwardly conscious. They wanted to ensure that the outside of the cup was clean, and he's regularly addressing it. Jesus came to bring effectual change, so he was not satisfied with outward adornment or righteous actions that were apparent for the world to see. He wanted to see their inward motivation change because that would bring real, lasting change. Saints, this is a life-changing ministry, one that changes your devotion, changes your heart's desire, and is no longer rules and regulations. Anybody cut to the heart a little bit? Well, we've got some inspiring good news for you. Jesus came to bring effectual change in this problem. Amen. Thank God Jesus came yes. to bring a sexual change. Thank God he had the ability to look right. I mean, what would have happened if Jesus would have looked at most of the people he interacted and said, no, you're doing good. You're tithing. You know? You give a tenth of all you have. You travel. You go across the land and see to make a single convert. And they are ten times the son of heaven that you are. No, he came to bring a sexual change and we are far better for it. John 1, 12 through 13 John's introduction of Jesus in the world. He says, but as many as did receive him, he gave 
To them he gave authority to become sons of God. Yes. Not spoiled children. Not little bitty babies that are motivated by fear and insecurity. Actual sons of the living God. Amen. To those believing in his name who are not of blood. This is the Young's literal translation, by the way. Who are not of blood, nor of a will of flesh, nor of a will of man, but of God they were begotten. Jesus came to do the one thing that you could not do by your own will, and that's make you a son of God. Jesus can do the one thing that you can't do by external motivation, by getting yourself all riled up and saying, yeah, I'm going to conquer sin in my life. He came to do the one thing that you couldn't do and make you a son of God. You know what that looks like? When you are all fearful about some kind of situation and Jesus reminds you, hey, you are not a slave in my house. You are my son. And you don't have to live like this. We, all, we constantly need to be reminded of that, don't we? You are not a slave anymore. You are a son of God. Let that be your inward motivation. Because John often helps lift both of our spirits. We're going to read you one more passage out of John 1. It's 16 through 18. From the fullness of his grace, we have all. Somebody say all. All. We have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. He's been called to sonship and been given access through the one who has made God known. We have been given blessing after blessing, one after another, it says. Saints, I want to tell you tonight, this is us. This is not someone else. This is not a person in a far, far away place or somebody in Virginia or Chicago. We... Have been given one blessing after another. Amen. A harvest must be reaped from within and without in our lives. We must understand the kind of sonship that we've been called to that transforms us on every level, that we walk in the fullness of what has been provided. Yeah. Our God has laid out such good things for us, an all surpassing power that I'm longing to see some of you tap into because God has put it at your disposal. It is there. He's longing to give it to you. Amen. Tonight I say we recognize the blessings that God has given us. Amen. That we recognize His goodness to us. And we decide as men and women of God to walk in the fullness of His grace in our life. Yeah. Brother Linton, get 23 and 24 for us. At the turn of the year, the army of Aram marched against Joab. It invaded Judah and Jerusalem and killed all the leaders of the people. They sent all the plunder to their king in Damascus. Although the Aramean army had come with only a few men, the Lord delivered into their hands a much larger army. Because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, judgment was executed on Joab. Man, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we're going to get into some good stuff and we are working towards our close. But talk about a miracle in the wrong direction. You know, there are miracles in your life where God says, man, though they come against you, you will slay, you, you will stand with one and make a thousand of them flee. And then there are times where the enemy has a miracle over you and you have to really ask why. This causes us to examine the miracles in our lives. They might reveal some surprising truth. 
take stock of your life and, and see what's going on. Are you on the advance or does the enemy have one up on you? If it seems like the enemy is having some miracles in your life, you might need to take stock and see where you're really standing. But I'm confident that we've actually got some miracles on our side, don't we? Amen. I know what it's like also to have some miracles against me. And I, I'll tell you, there's some of the best things that's ever happened to me. Struggling, laboring. Why is nothing working? And then the Lord speaks the answer. Man, that's a good thing. It teaches you to get right with the Lord and you start thanking Him for the trials. Saying, my God, thank you, you didn't let me go off on my own. But you actually reined me in. Amen. What we need is all out faith and reckless abandonment for the king. We love not better preparation, profits, or position. We love to follow the Lord and to do anything for him because we're compelled by him. And that causes all out faith. Say all out faith. All out faith. We need to be driven by the same thing that drove Jehoiada. A hope that does not quit. Say hope. Hope. A hope that does not quit. A love that compels us. Pick up in 25 and let's keep going. When the Arameans withdrew, they left Joash severely wounded. His officials conspired against him for murdering the son of Jehoiada the priest. And they killed him in his bed. So he died and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the king. Mm. Love how matter of fact Ezra is at times. (laughs) This is sadly the result of following those who love the Lord, but never taking on the same love in yourself. Jehoiada quite literally put his life on the line to see Joash made king and enter eternity as a king. Saints, like all good fathers, Jehoiada would have gladly traded places with Joash in death and burial. He didn't fight, stand, and do all that he did to see him fail. I know the fathers in this house have not fought, labored, and suffered to see you fail. Amen. No father looks for that in their children. They lay down their lives to see them succeed. The resounding truth of the matter is that no amount of teaching, supervision, pastoring, counsel, or external support can create a fiery love for the Lord in you that is needed to finish well. might carry you for a season, two or three years, maybe if you're lucky, even a decade. But you will not finish your life well. I've fortunately been unfortunate enough to watch men in the last years of their life fall away because this was not ever right inside of them. Telling you is not what you want. Jehoiada is longing for his sons to succeed, and he's made a way at every turn. But his son's not even buried with the kings. Mm. He was, but his sons weren't. I'm going to give you a piece of encouragement. I'm going to read Philippians 1.6 to you again. You ready? But being confident of this with you, LCM, that he who began a good work in you, LCM, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We are confident of such matters in your case. 26 and 27. Those who conspired against him were Zabad, the son of Shimei, an Ammonite woman, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrich, a Moab woman, woman. The account of his sons, many prophecies about him, and the record of the restoration of the temple of God are written in the annotations on the book of the kings. And Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Saints, we're approaching the balance of our time and have covered the balance of our text. I want to point out to you 
that his death is from people who descended from Ammonites and Moabites. You're all Bible scholars in your own time. Source that out. Amen. You'll find it a, to be an interesting discussion. Where we would like to close with you is on cultivating the kind of love for Christ that will stand until the end. Amen. We don't want to leave you in a bad state. We want to win with you. Amen. Does that sound good? Yes. Yes. I'm going to hand out a few passages and we're going to get right to it. Hayes, get Matthew 24, 9 through 13. Steve Thomas, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. See. Leslie, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Who else wants to read? Get, uh, get Rob. Micaiah, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Rob, there you are. Romans 5, 2 through 5. Yes. Timo. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. And yes, there is more. Sutherland, Revelation 2, 2 through 5. Actually, 3 through 5. Then uh, Nick Rosales, Psalm 31, 14 through 16. Hey, y'all, uh, that's it. Those are the scriptures. But y'all take note of these scriptures. If you did, Whenever you get your scripture, say the verse. <coughs> Say the chapter and verse before you read so everyone else can write these down if you didn't get them. This is the core of what we got when we were praying for this body tonight. This is the core of what we want to center on and what we want to focus on. And honestly, these passages over and over and over again can help you, can uplift you out of whatever situation you're in. These kind of scriptures is what's going to motivate you till the end of your life to keep you driving on the heels of the enemy and finishing out God's will for your life. Who has Matthew 24? Matthew 24, 9 through 13. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So let's grapple with something for a little bit. It says many, the love of most, will grow cold. Well, what causes that to happen? Persecutions, hatred by all, false prophets, deceptions, increase of wickedness. That is what will cause the love of most to grow cold. You know what I call that? Call that a lack of inward motivation. Somehow or another, letting external things rob you of your love. That is what will get many of us. And the charge from that is to grow your inward motivation. To have the love of God burning hot in us at all times and every time. That way there is nothing that can come and steal that from you. That kind of work when external pressure robs you of your love of God ought to cause you to sit down and figure out where your love is. It ought to cause you to examine that love. Let's go on to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For Christ's love compels us. Oh, read it one more time for me, Steve. Read it with some enthusiasm. For Christ's love compels us. Not circumstances, not obligation, yeah. not peer pressure. Christ's love Amen. compels us. Amen. Keep going, brother. Because we are convinced that one died for all. Therefore, all die. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was brought to you. 
says we are convinced. It sounds very much so like he has a conviction. Something that is inwardly motivated. A die that has been cast inside of his own heart. That he understands what Christ has done for him and what he must now do. Love compels him. Saints, that's what will carry you to the resurrection of the dead. That's what will cause you to enter the gates of eternity with a head held high because you loved your God and it compelled you. Listen, failure is not fatal if Christ's love is what is compelling you. This is our hope. This is our strength. This is what causes us to endure till the end. Philippians 2, 12. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. <coughs> Read 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act. Man. Got it. Man, when Christ's love compels you, you have no problem obeying in the presence of your leaders. And also in the absence of your leaders. When you are motivated and compelled by the love of Christ, there is no separation whether presence or absence. You still love Christ. You love Him when your leaders are there. You love Him even more when your brothers are there. And you love Him all the more when it's just you alone and God is the only one watching because you love the Lord. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. Amen. Say that with me. It is God, God who, works in me. who works in me. Man, when you know that God is working inside you, some will call it butterflies, some will call it that tingly emotion, but when you know for a fact that God is driving you to will and to act, when you see Him working inside of you, working things out, it causes you to love Him and to continue to work out your salvation. When you know that He is the one working inside of you. When you know it's not external motivation, not just the pastors trying to work inside of you. When He has that one face-to-face kind of relationship that Moses had with Him, and He is working things in you, when He is speaking to you, and you know it is God who is speaking to you. When you are alone in your car, and you're worshiping all by yourself, and you know God is speaking to you, and you can't help but worship even though no one else is around. It is God working inside you. And that will cause you to continue. Say continue. Continue. To work it out. Amen. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. We're going to take that one verse by verse. So get verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So to be in the kingdom, to be born of God, begins with John 1. That something that was not of man's will, that was not of flesh and blood, but was born from above, has entered into your life. And I'm reminded of the words that Paul spoke to the Galatians. Have you started in the Spirit, and now someone bewitched you? Listen, you didn't get here by your own will and your own determination. You got here by the power of God. Don't deviate from it. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. To love God is to obey His commands. To obey His commands is 
to love God. But it very specifically says that we love the children of God. Saints, our relationship and love that compels to the Father will show up with our brothers and sisters around us. If we have a love that is compelling us to Him, it will show up in this kind of relationship. Get verse 3. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Saints, the reason this is in here is because we were praying. And after praying a little more with my brother, I was able to see things that I had to go back to the altar for because I couldn't see it in advance. The commands of God are not burdensome. And he spoke that to me in a way that I couldn't get away from. And so I'm going to do it to you as well. This last week I've been doing the things that God has called me to. Standing where he's told me to stand. But far too much of my time, my day, was a burden instead of being compelled by Christ's love. You know, and I wasn't really able to see it until... I was in his presence enough with a brother to strip away my own heart's deceitfulness. Tell me that areas of your life that Christ has called you to haven't become a burden or treated as an obligation. Saints, because I love you, I'm not going to tolerate the word obligation in relation to anything that is ministry. It's not an obligation to attend church. It's not an obligation to be on the worship team. It is not an obligation to have the opportunity to serve the living God. Christ's love compels us and it's not a burden. We say these things in speech, but tonight it's going to become the reality. It is our joy. Yes. Get verse 4 and 5 quickly. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Saints, we know the ways in which faith has been redefined. But faith in this house will be a conviction based upon things that you've received from the Father that for you are a reality because you love Him and because you trust Him. This is what will overcome the world in your life. This is what will overcome the world in your day tomorrow. This is what will overcome the next situation that you are going to walk into. Because we know we're involved in warfare. It will happen. And the living God will prevail in you when you stand in this. Romans 5. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in what? The hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. Keep going. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our what? Kind of hard to do if you don't love the one that you're suffering for. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given. Come on. Man, there is so much packed into this verse if you can just grab a little bit of it. If you could just grab a little bit of what Paul's saying here. Yes, suffering produces something inside of you. The end result of that is hope, though. And hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. 
God has poured out His love into our hearts. He has taken your heart that is hard. A heart that is motivated by everything that is not godly. Like Romans 5 earlier says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And He not only showed His love by dying for you, the ungodly, He pours out His love into your heart. He creates a watershed of His love inside your heart because of what He's done. In those times of worship, He pours into you the love that He has for you. And that's why hope doesn't disappoint. Because you know in the worst time in your suffering and everything that is coming against you, there is that hope that He still loves me. There is that hope that He will give me glory in Him. There is that Holy Spirit that is constantly guiding you as a counselor. Man, the love of God has been poured out into your hearts. And we're going to have more of it poured out into our hearts tonight. He is a faithful husband who demonstrates His love for you first. And man, come on ladies, when your husband pours out His love, when your husband shows His love to you, you can't help but to have a smile. You can't help but to rejoice. All the things that you thought were sufferings no longer are sufferings anymore. They are glory. Because He has poured out His love for you. We need to invite the Almighty God tonight, and we're going to do it, to pour out His love into us. It's one thing to say, I'm going to pour out my love, I'm going to pour out my love to you, Jesus. It's kind of hard to do that if you're empty. And He's more than willing to pour out His love for you. He's already done it on the cross. Saints, as we transition to 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's a genuine direction of the Holy Ghost that there are men in this room that need to raise their hands as we close here in just a few minutes and that God will fill you with the kind of hope that you need. I can see our two Rosales brothers back here that are standing where they need to stand. They're being men. I can also see that they need the hope of God to pour into them in a way that lightens their eyes. I use them as an example because I know they're not going to shrink back. They can take it. There are others in the room that you've been doing what you're called to do for quite some time, but hope has begun to slip away from you. I'm seeing Rob a kind of hope that I haven't seen before that's not based upon external circumstances. Yeah. That something's being cultivated in his life that is unique, that is strong. Don't let these moments pass you by. The Lord is able to fill you with something that will remain when nothing else does. To that note, 1 Corinthians 13, get 8 through 13 for me. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, they will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. For when perfection comes, the imperfect, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see it but a full reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known, even as I am fully known. Thirteen. <laughs> and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 
Saints, this is a passage that is so rarely taught on in an accurate context. It's used for a great deal of things, like a shovel, a tool of some sort for a theological argument. The reality is the man that most of us revere the most for what he suffered for the gospel recognized the fact that everything around him was fading, but faith, hope, and a love for the Almighty God was not going to pass away. That it was the one thing that could sustain him to the very end and that God was pouring it into him even as adversity was being poured out upon him. Now is one of those moments where we get to say, let everything else be damned. Let it all fall away. I'm going to let my hope in him arise. My faith is going to rise in this house tonight. My love for him will compel me above all else and know what it is to stand for the Lord by his power. Not our own grit, not our own outward motivations and external stances but to know what it is to rise in the actual power of Christ that is beyond you. I'm going to read Revelation 2, 2 through 5. And we're going to see where the Holy Spirit takes us. Amen? Amen. I know it's awkward to hear men like Judah and myself stand up and talk about love. But you know what? We're realizing that pure machismo or grit or our own strength or ability to get things done is no longer going to cut it. That we have to be motivated by something. When we thought about this passage, this is written to the Ephesians. Paul wrote about love many times to this church. And I kind of see a little bit of us in it. Verse 3 says, I know you are enduring patiently. Thank God. Thank thank the Lord God knows that, right? I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, no doubt many of you have heard many sermons on this. And they quote it as, you have abandoned your first love. It's not actually what the text says. When you hear you have abandoned your first love, you think of it like... uh, Someone you used to date in high school and you just kind of moved on. No? This is a talking about the love that you had at first. The kind of heart that was prompted and compelled by love for a Savior. Prompted and compelled like a bride would be prompted and compelled for her husband. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We have a good and faithful God who is showing us these things so that we can get it right. He loves us so much that he wants us to get it right. He's asking us tonight to return to the love you had at first. What did that love compel you to do at first? Remember in my life, I used, to, I used to be all excited when people would say that there wasn't fellowship going on. Because what I knew that would mean is I get to go home and be with Jesus, reading his word and praying to him. Now we can't seem to get our minds right whenever there's nothing to do. 
because perhaps we might need to be motivated and compelled by the love that we had at first. This is a call to the body to come back to that love. There is no motivation that's going to carry us to the end. There is no strength that we can conjure up. There is no kind of just pure picking yourself up by your bootstraps. But you know what there is for you? You can fall in love with Jesus just like you did at first. And that will cause you to do the things that you did at first. And I promise you that will carry you to the end. I'm going to summarize Psalm 31 for you. It says, my times are in your hands. The psalmist appeals to the living God based upon the fact that he loves him and that he trusts him. And he says, in your unfailing love, save me. Saints, I want to tell you, we do not serve a God who will look at your love and then refrain from giving you his own. In fact, he loved us first, and he's looking for his sons to come to him, and he will revive something in you that you have not felt in years. A biblical hope is a trust, a love that has become a conviction, not mere preferences, like I hope he gets better. It's a conviction that the hope of God will not fail me. Amen. Tonight, by His power, we are going to ascend beyond fear and consequence. We will ascend beyond obligation and social pressure. We will take our stand in an all-consuming love for Christ. He says, I don't care a damn what it costs. I will stand for Him to the end. At this point, when we pray, I would like some of the men that have stood in the kingdom the longest, faithfully, Baj, Elder Baj, Elder Charlie, to help direct us, have our pastors direct us. We deeply love the Lord. We are fighting for His name. But they have something that we don't. A sustained, fiery love for 30, 40 years that you don't find very often. And I myself am going to ask them to pray for me that that same fire would be kindled till the end.